This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. God declares to you and I that God is for you. Even when we're not faithful? Yeah. Because the Word declares that even when we're not faithful, He remains faithful because He cannot and will not deny Himself. God is for you. And do you realize the richness of all of that? Pastor David will be teaching us today the importance of understanding that God is for us, not against us. Trust and faith are not blind. They're based on knowledge and understanding of God's Word given by the Holy Spirit, as well as the experience of God coming through for you in the past. If you don't understand the greatness and power of who God is, then it may be hard for you to understand how God is for you, not against you. Reflect back on His faithfulness and renew your mind. Let's join Pastor David in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 31, for part one of our message entitled, God is for us. Paul says to us, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, what things is Paul talking about when he says these things? Well, we can look at just what we covered last week, and that's part of it, but I believe that we need to go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 8. Remember, we ended chapter 7 with this perplexing situation that Paul said that he had. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, that's the very things that I am doing. And then he ends up with that declaration, Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me or who can deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he launches into chapter 8, which I believe is the great answer to the question of chapter 7. So what can we say to these things? Well, we read it in chapter 8. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's one of them. One of the other ones that we read in the richness of chapter 8 is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. We read that in verse 16 of chapter 8. And what a great assurance that is for us. Also in verses 28 and 30 of chapter 8, we read what we studied last week, that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, for those who are the called according to His purposes. And then he goes on to speak about this idea of foreknowledge and predestination and the calling and the justification and the glorification of the believer. So I believe that Paul has laid out all of these things. Then he comes with this question. So what do we say to all of these things? And then he has that great declaration, if God be for us, who can be against us? Do you realize the richness and the power of what Paul is saying there? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, you might look at that word, yeah, I understand exactly what Paul is saying. If God is for me, maybe perhaps God's for me, but I don't know. But if He were for me, I know that I would be able... No, that's not what he's saying. In the Greek, the understanding of that word if comes in three different classes. The third class of the word if comes in something that's probably not going to happen. The idea of probably not going to happen. It would be like if I said the sentence, well, if pigs fly, I'll loan Tom a $1,000. Well, 
pigs ain't going to fly and Tom's not getting the money. So forget about it. It ain't going to happen. The second class of it is that there is a possibility that this might happen. We could say, well, if it rains this afternoon, it's probably going to cancel our picnic. And it looks like it might rain this afternoon. There's a possibility of it. That's the second class. But what Paul is speaking here is in what they call the first class. And that's a declaration that it is going to happen. And in fact, we can take that word and just like, like if you're here today, well, the fact is you're here. Otherwise, you wouldn't hear my word. We know that you're here. You can actually transpose into that the word since. Since you're here today. And when we look at what he says in that, since God is for us, who can be against us? Beloved, you need to know that if you've come by faith to Jesus Christ and you know him as your Lord and Savior, the word of God declares to you and I that God is for you. Even when we're not faithful? Yeah. Because the Word declares that even when we're not faithful, He remains faithful because He cannot and will not deny Himself. God is for you. And do you realize the richness of all of that? It's the richness that you and I, because of that, can now have great trust and great faith in the work of God in our lives. For many believers, they think, well, you know, we have to have blind faith. We have to have blind trust in God. I just need to, you know, just trust in God. And faith is that coming to the edge of darkness and taking one more step. I've, I've seen the bumper sticker. I've seen the posters. I don't agree with them. I believe that trust and faith are not blind. I believe that they are based on knowledge and understanding and experience. My faith and my trust are based on the knowledge of God's Word, my understanding that He gives by His Holy Spirit, and the experience that not only I've had with God in the past, but that you've had, and the testimony of your lives in the richness of what God has done for you. You see, in the understanding of being able to see what God has done, to be able to read what God has done by His Spirit, working in my life of what God is doing and has done, then that, that gives me the ability to take and, and step out in faith, and to walk in faith, and to trust God even more. I can look back and I can say, man, God did it in my life back then. I know that he can do it now because God hasn't changed. God hasn't gotten any weaker, but in my life, I've learned to trust him more. And so I can boldly step out, not into darkness. No, it's because it's been illuminated by the knowledge of the greatness of who God is. And when we have that, there can be that boldness in our life to be able to proclaim, if God is for me, who can be against me? And do you understand even that aspect of it? The greatness of who God is. And if you don't understand the greatness and the power and the might of who God is, then you're not going to have a full understanding of what this verse is speaking. Now, this may be a poor illustration, but it would be like if I was walking down the street and out of a side alley, suddenly some thugs start coming toward me in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden I realize these guys aren't coming here to sell Girl Scout cookies. There's going to be a problem here, and it's just me to deal with these three thugs. But then out of the darkness 
Over on the other side, someone comes out of the darkness, and all of a sudden I look over and I realize it's Andre the Giant. He's seven foot four, five hundred and forty pounds back when he was back when he was. He's passed away since then. And Andre the Giant comes and steps next to me with his arms folded and with that kind of daring look in his eyes. But then not just steps next to me. I notice he comes up and he stands right in front of me with me behind him. And he's standing there to take every blow that would come against me. And I would come to understand, man, if Andre is for me, these guys don't have a chance. Because he'll pulverize them. As I said, it's a poor illustration. But the fact is that if God is for us, and he is then who can be against us? There's nothing that the enemy could do to destroy us or to wipe out in our lives all that God wants to do and work in our lives. And beloved, you and I need to come to that clear understanding of the richness of that truth. Well, verse 32 actually gives us some further proof of the fact that God is for us. Verse 32, he says, He, speaking of God, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? We just partook of communion. We spoke of God sending His Son in human flesh on our behalf in order to take the payment of our sin upon Himself. We read the story of the crucifixion in the Gospels and how God Himself had to turn His face from His own Son as He took upon Himself the sin of mankind. And we heard Him cry out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Why did He do that? Because of the greatness of His love for you. Because He's for you. If you are his child, if you've come by faith to receive Jesus Christ, God is for you, and he's for you so much, he sent his son to die on your behalf so that you did not have to pay the payment of your sin. But God says, no, I'll send my son instead. I'll send my son in your behalf. What further proof, what deeper proof would we need of the greatness of the love that God has for us? Greater love has no man that he would lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Christ did on our behalf. Beloved, since God loves you, who can be against you? That ought to give great hope in your life, man, that God is on your side. God is for you. Now we come to verse 33. In verse 33, we read, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Again, Paul brings out that idea and the thought of being there in the courtroom. Who's going to bring this charge against the elect? And as we enter into the courtroom as being the one that's on trial, suddenly we look and over here is a prosecuting attorney. And it's Satan himself. And he says he's guilty. She's guilty. She's a sinner. He's a sinner. I've seen the sin in their lives. I can lay out, and he's got a stack on his desk of the sins and the attitudes, the actions of our lives that were against God. And I understand and know that some of our stacks are a little bit bigger than some of your other ones. But the fact is that even if there is only one charge against us, we're still guilty. Amen? Amen. And sin requires a payment. 
And so we are there in the courtroom. The prosecution has this huge charge against us. We are guilty. There's nowhere that we can go at that point in time. And so in our weariness and in our despair, finally we lift up our heads to try and plead our case to the judge. And suddenly we look at the judge and we suddenly realize it's Abba, Father, who is our judge. It's God Almighty who has declared just verses uh, uh, before that, that we have been adopted into his family. Can you imagine standing before the judge and he's your father? And in the greatness of his love towards you, he sees the case. He hears the prosecution who declares he's guilty. And the judge is hearing this and he's looking at us. And then he turns to our defense attorney who just happens to be the Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself, our advocate, the one who is pleading our case. And so He comes, and as our advocate, Jesus pleads the case for us. Yes, He's guilty, but the price has already been paid. And He shows once again the scars in His hands, the scar in His side, and in His feet. I took the payment for Him. I took the payment for her. And so the call comes out, are there any other witnesses for this? And the Holy Spirit of God raises up and the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. And so the judge, our father, brings down the gavel onto the bench and he says, justified. He is justified. He might be guilty, she might be guilty, but the fact is she and he are justified. It's been taken care of. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's not God, because God justifies. The next verse we move to is verse 34. So who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who is it that's going to condemn us? It's not Jesus As a matter of fact, the Scriptures tell us in John chapter 3 that God sent not His Son into the world to, what church? To condemn the world, but that all the world might be saved through Him. Who is going to condemn us? Not Christ. Christ died for us. Furthermore, He is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He's continually pleading our case to the Father. How rich is that? And what a blessing. No, Father, I know the sin. That's why I died. I know His failures. That's why I gave my life. I know in her life the wickedness that was there. But my blood covered it all. He's interceding on our behalf continually. There's other scriptures that deal with the intercession of Christ. And when we look at these other scriptures, it speaks to us in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, or 24 and 25. And I'm going to go through these quickly, but you're more than welcome to look them up or just write them down and look at them later. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and verse 25, we read this, but he, speaking of Christ because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save, for the most part, those who come to God through him. Amen? Amen. No, it's not what it says. Tricked you, huh? 
He is not able to save for the most part. The Word of God declares He is able to save to the uttermost. Every crack, every crevice, every dark and secret and hidden point of our life, He is able to save to the uttermost. Beloved, when you come to Christ, you aren't partially saved. You aren't mostly saved. You are saved to the uttermost. And that is the benefit of our salvation, saved to the uttermost. But he goes on. He says, saved to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he, speaking of Christ, always lives to make intercession for them, for us. Always making intercession. Another passage in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. The writer of Hebrews declares, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but he's entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, do you understand the richness of that? To appear in the presence of God for us. Now, to be in the presence of God, what an awesome thing that would be, and you would expect the Son of God to be in the presence of God. But do you understand now why He's there? He's there on your behalf. He's there on our behalf. Because He's interceding for us. Because He is the advocate for us. Because He Himself continues to pray for us. And He's right there with the Father for us. Another passage that you're probably very familiar with and some of you may even have memorized. It's found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. But I want you to listen to it. My little children, John writes... These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And I love the visual picture that I get of this because John is an old man at this point in time. Okay, he's an older man. I don't want to offend too many people. He's probably pushing up to his 90s at this point in time. And I look at it as he's not calling just his children. He's calling his children and his grandchildren, perhaps his great-great-grandchildren. And with that kind of love of gathering all of these together. He writes very, very personal to them. He says, oh, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you wouldn't sin. Why would you sin after knowing the greatness of the love that God has for you? Why would you continue to rebel and continue to chase after the flesh? Why would you continue to be defiant toward the God who loves you? He says, I write these things that you would not sin. But then he goes on because he also knows the weaknesses of our flesh. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. That advocate is there when we sin. We can go before Him. We confess our sins. The Word says He's faithful. He's just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the hope that we have as believers. But John doesn't finish there. He says also that He Himself, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. That is a great word, propitiation. Some of you have probably used that earlier this week just in casual conversation, right? How many of you normally use propitiate? Yeah, I didn't think so either. I never use it unless I'm reading in the Word. And uh, that's when you read it. The word propitiation means paid in full. It's a done deal. It's complete. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 
What a richness is ours in Christ because he is that advocate ever interceding on our behalf. So finally, the last question we come to, and that's found in verse 35. The last question, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of God of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He gives this long laundry list of things. And I want you to take a look at the issues that he brings up here. He says, what could possibly separate us from the love of Christ? Could tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Why would he list these things? I believe that the reason he listed these things, and these things in particular, these are the things that Paul has gone through in his walk of faith. And Paul can say experientially, I can tell you that none of these things will separate you from the love of Christ. None of them. And for a a further word picture for you to understand, take the first letters of each one of those words. And what does that spell? I heard it. Nothing spells nothing, and nothing is going to separate you from the love of Christ. Amen? Nothing. That is the hope that is ours in Christ. But he drives it home a little bit further. There in verse 36 and 37, he compounds the issue. He declares in verse 36, as it's written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep. For the slaughter. Yet in all of these things, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He pulls from Psalm 44, and that's a, a psalm of distress, where the psalmist writes, Lord, I'm dying here, and I don't hear your voice. I'm crying out to you, and I'm not seeing the answer right now. Because the truth is, is in your life and in my life, there are those times in our lives where we cry out, and the answer is not immediate. Or it's a different answer than we've asked for. And we can cry out to God. And Paul says, man, we're, 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 we're being killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. And yet in the midst of all of these things, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. More than conquerors? I believe that what he means by that is overwhelmingly victorious. It's not that I, oh, I made it through another trial in my life. I made it through another tribulation in my life. Oh, Lord, no. I believe it's as we mature in faith and if we can catch the grandeur of the magnitude of Almighty God in our lives and the fact that He is for us, that as we press through these things, we can say, you know what? That was another attack of the enemy that tried to drag me away from faith in the Lord. And you know what? I still stand strong in my hope and in my victory and in my assurance of what God is doing in my life. I I shall not be, I shall not be moved. Because the enemy will do everything that he can to drag you down. Paul comes to this bold declaration finally there in verse 38. This is pretty much an answer for the entire battle that started back in chapter 7. He says, for I am persuaded... I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was persuaded. He didn't, oh, gee, I kind of hope it's going to happen. Paul was persuaded 
because he knew experientially in his own life. He knew from the revelation of God's word as he understood and was growing in the knowledge of who God was. He knew it from the lives of others as he saw the power of God working in their lives. And he says, there's nothing that's ever going to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And part of that separation, he says, and any other created thing. We hope that today's edition of The Open Word has been a blessing to you. If you live in the Casa Grande, Arizona area, we want to invite you to join us for worship. The messages that you hear on The Open Word are produced from worship services at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. Maybe the teaching you heard is exactly what you're looking for in a church. Then please join us. We have services on Saturday evenings and two Sunday morning worship services, as well as other services throughout the week. For more information about service times, including driving directions, log on to TheOpenWord.com and then follow the link to the church website. Now, we want to be sure to tell you how you can get a free copy of this teaching. Simply log on to TheOpenWord.com. Our website has today's message available for you to download. For more information about The Open Word or Calvary Chapel Casa Grande, again, we encourage you to log on to TheOpenWord.com. Although The Open Word teachings are always available to you free of charge, if you'd like to help support this ministry, simply log on to our homepage at TheOpenWord.com and click on the support link to make a secure donation to this teaching ministry. Your donation can be set up as a one-time or regularly scheduled tax-deductible gift to this ministry. From all of us here with the production team, we want to say thank you for tuning in, and may God richly bless you.